Welcome to No Nonsense Nonprofit, where you can get actionable tips and tools to advance your mission work. I'm your host, Sarai Johnson, founder and principal consultant at Lean Nonprofit. I started Lean Nonprofit because nonprofits are businesses too, and I want to help you run yours like a boss. So enjoy today as we talk about No Nonsense Nonprofits. Hello, everybody. This is Sarai Johnson, your host. I'm so stoked to be here today with you, as always. Today, we're going to talk about how you can make your funders your allies and really help them be the best partner they can be for you. The thing is, we have a funny relationship with non- with nonprofit funders. And one of the reasons is because people who have power typically are the ones who have the money and the biggest platform. And oftentimes in the United States and other capitalistic societies, money equals speech, as we tragically found out several years ago here in the US when it came to the Citizens United decision from the Supreme Court. Now, we're not going to get all political today, but I do want to go ahead and get into this conversation about how funders can come alongside you better and be more a partner to you than they may be currently. All right, so I worked in nonprofits for a long time, and I'm going to tell you, there was a time when I suddenly realized that the game was rigged. I worked at an economic development organization, and we worked really hard on helping to mobilize people and help them move out of poverty long term. So we may have been working with people who were, who were experiencing some emergency services kinds of needs and who needed some immediate attention, but our goal was really to kind of move people past that place into a place where they could be more financially stable long term, and so they could build assets in order to change that cycle of generational poverty. That was really important to me because my big mission in life, if you've listened to this before, you probably know, is to to focus on liberation and freedom and self-determination for all people. And that was what we were doing in that work. Is that It wasn't surprising because I read funder guidelines, of course. I was writing a lot of grants at the time, so I was very familiar with what funder guidelines were saying. But what was really interesting to me was how out of touch I found a lot of these funders to be and how little I found they were able to hear a case outside of their immediately stated priorities. I recognized at that time Time, that the dynamic between funders and nonprofits was a lot messier than I had intent- originally imagined. And the reason for this, again, is that we create an asymmetry of power when we're talking about money. And I don't think it has to be this way. I think funders want to help, I, obviously. I mean, they're putting their money somewhere for more than just you know tax reasons. There are other reasons why they're doing that. They want to make an impact in the world in a specific way, in a specific place and they see your organization as potentially helping them do that. So that's important and that's good. Now what I think is interesting is when funders get into a place of kind of isolated paternalism. And I'll say that they end up in the place where they maybe don't know what's going on on the ground level of organizations because we aren't telling them. And we honestly have an obligation not only just to our own organizations and to the people we serve and to the missions that we're trying to make real in the world, but to the funders themselves to communicate with them honestly and clearly about what it is that we need as nonprofits in order to allow their money to go the furthest and to do our best work. Okay, so I'm going to tell you a little bit more about this today. I'm going to give you a list of things that you will recognize as people who work in nonprofits that are problems. If you're a funder, you may recognize them as things you might have thought about or that someone may have mentioned to you, uh, but I want to let you know that they're huge pervasive problems and that they are something that I think we can work towards solving. Okay, so the very first one 
I'm gonna put out there is the issue of overhead. First thing, I sat down with a lot of funders and one of the things that they said to me constantly was, we don't fund any overhead. Not even 10%? Nope, not even 10%. They wanna see their money, quote, actually, end quote, go to help people. Now, I'm gonna just be honest and say, I think this is uh, well-intentioned. I get where it's coming from. Back when I used to be a donor without knowing about how nonprofits worked, I too wanted all of my money to go to, to serve people. What I didn't recognize was that the nonprofit organizations were in fact organizations, and so they had buildings to pay for, and electricity to pay for, and management to pay for, and fundraising expenses to pay for, and all kinds of other things, legitimate expenses to pay for that allow them to do the work of serving the people that I cared about having them serve. I used to write a lot of checks to organizations and designate where I wanted that money to go. As later as a fundraiser, I recognized how irritating it is. <laughs> that was the habit that I was in. Because ultimately, as much as I might care about a certain issue, I don't have the infinite wisdom and knowledge and on the ground understanding of what an organization is actually doing and what works. So when I'm designating my donations, I'm limiting perhaps the impact while I, I thought that I was doing something good. So instead of having the effect that I intended by limiting what my donation could be spent on, I in fact have now thwarted myself by shooting myself in the foot by acting like I know something that the organizations who are actually doing the work don't know, when in reality, that is not true. So what do we need to do about this? I mean, in reality, organizations that are giving us money are not required to do anything. But if a lot of us get together and start to say, hey, you know, in real life, it actually costs this much money to run a nonprofit organization, that will be one important thing. Second thing, we could, just that crazy idea here, we could stop hiding our actual expenses underneath a whole bunch of fancy accounting. So when we're really looking at how we do our work in nonprofits and how we, how we record that accounting wise, I think we do a little bit of fancy footwork on where we put our overhead costs. So we might attribute it to program by doing allocations, or we might hide our fundraising costs under program somehow. There are lots of different ways that we do this and we make it look like our overhead costs are minimal. And all that does is perpetuate the myth that nonprofits do not need to have overhead funded. The real thing is that if you want an organization to make any kind of impact at all, you have to pay for it. If you're a funder, it needs to be paid, okay? You have to think about what it really costs to run an organization. This is the challenge I wanna offer any foundation out there, any one of you. Please let me know if you can do this. Let me suggest to you that you run your foundation on 10% overhead and no more. I'm talking annual budget, okay? So I'm not even talking about like your endowment or anything like that. I want you to tell me, can you afford your beautiful gold-plated offices in the middle of a big city if you're only running on 10% overhead? And I'm not trying to be classist here. I'm just trying to point out the fact that it seems really weird to me that that is the way that foundations approach nonprofits, assuming that you know they can only... <laughs> only run on 10% or less overhead when you know you don't and no one else in the world does either. So let's not make up fake arbitrary numbers that we wanna impose on people that aren't real. And then on the nonprofit side, let's not pretend they're real. They're not. Let's just get honest. Okay, so the next thing is we don't fund fill in the blank line item thing here. 
Okay, so I understand if you really would prefer to fund staff or if you'd really prefer to fund capital or if you'd really prefer to fund you know, something else that's really specific, that can be your thing, that's fine. I think where I'm, I have struggles with this is I did once receive a rejection letter from a foundation that said completely honestly in real life, we don't fund staff capital overhead program or project expenses. It was crazy because I was like, wait a minute, what do you fund just out of curiosity? And I couldn't really quite figure it out. So that was kind of a weird one. Um, I, I was always in the habit of asking for feedback after a rejected application. And with that one, I, I really just got back the same kind of answer. I, I mean, I think when you're looking at doing charitable work in the world, it's important to recognize that nonprofits have real expenses. And again, if you're saying you'd never fund staff and you'd never fund, you know, whatever it is, make sure that what you do fund is something that's useful to them. And nonprofits, be honest. What is it that you actually need? For most of us, I think it's probably capacity. Capacity meaning staff investments and capital investments or investment in our fundraising. Those are all important things, and it's important for us to say, hey, this is the stuff that we actually need. And it's wonderful for you to fund new and exciting programs, but it is not sufficient for us to do our work in a world where we're always running to try to please some funder. Another thing that I heard a lot was that we only fund emergency services. Well, it turns out that when we're funding only emergency services, what we're doing is creating a vicious cycle because not only do we not fund anything but emergency services, we also don't fund the overhead, like I mentioned, oftentimes insufficient funding for staff. So staff are also underpaid, oftentimes qualifying for the very emergency services they're delivering to someone else, which is shameful if you ask me. And then we're finding ourselves bringing the same people in and churning them through the program and in and out the doors year after year, rather than moving them on to the next level. If we're looking at only funding emergency services and you're a funder or you're a nonprofit that just provides emergency services, I think it's really important to think about what's the next step. Life cannot only be about putting out fires. That's a really short term, not super wise way to think about life and about your work. So if you're in the mood to provide emergency services, which are necessary and important, and I really don't want to downplay that, I think it's really important to talk about what the next step is going to be after that. Where are people going to go next? Because when I look at only funding emergency services and also underfunding staff and also underfunding overhead, all I can see is a complete scarcity trap that's a self-perpetuating cycle. One of the other things that I think is really challenging is when uh, foundations require organizations to implement kind of the latest fad. So you guys know what I'm talking about when I say this, right? We have all kinds of fads that come up in the nonprofit sector. And I just recently wrote a blog actually about this exact same topic, which is um, about the nonprofit culture of poverty is what this blog is called. This is part, this, this concept that I'm talking about today is from part two of that around how we deal with power. Um, and I mention in it very specifically the Stanford Social Innovation Review, because they're the ones that uh, put out collaborative impact a couple of years ago. So everybody started doing collaborative impact for a while because it was just like, ooh, this is the next big thing. It's amazing. You know, and it works pretty well. I'm not going to say it doesn't, but I think it doesn't work for everybody. And especially when we're forcing nonprofits to put models together that are not necessarily working for them specifically or in certain areas um, or which it failed to acknowledge the reality of competition and the reality that nonprofits are not always working together, but sometimes they're working at cross purpose 
purposes, or sometimes they're trying to fight for market share. And I think it's important for us to recognize that we do not live in a perfect vacuum where a lot of organizations are going to just jump on to the collective impact bandwagon. Uh, that's just one example. Another example would be, you know, logic models that aren't sufficiently explained to the organizations that are supposed to be using them or implementing them, or they may just write one up to get the grant and then abandon it, or theories of change, which is a kind of more complicated version of a logic model that is uh, good in theory, but is also a little bit um, challenging for people to actually put in place. The point is, really the point is that we want to see results, right? So we're looking at how can we understand that the results are are attained um, rather than not, you know? So we're, you know, you don't want to throw your money down a toilet, obviously, but we also want to make sure that we're um, putting evaluation measures in place that can be done and can be funded and can be done at the right scale because it seems like either there's no evaluation or the evaluation is so rigorous and academic that you have to set up programs very rigidly from the beginning and that is also not helpful, especially when you're trying to solve a new problem in a new way or solve an old problem in a new way. The next two go hand in hand. So one of the things, you guys will all know this too, is that a lot of funders want you to have a project be sustainable within three years or less. So we're looking at basically a world where all people are funding is a bunch of pilot programs, kind of expensive pilot programs, if you ask me. So we're not really supposed to be doing things like iterating, although we should. I'm going to just advocate right now that I think that it's really important to create minimum viable programs, something that you can launch and measure really quickly and see if it's working and then make decisions whether you persevere or pivot on it and then go from there. Well, we usually do something much bigger than that. So we'll say, okay, we're going to do this three-year pilot project and we'll serve a thousand people and here are the very strict entry criteria and here's exactly how this program evaluation is going to go, et cetera, et cetera. Now, what really happens is that projects rarely become sustainable within three years because we don't have a mechanism built in for that a lot of the time, although I am an advocate, again, for generating revenue through your programs, and I think it can be done. If it can't be done, though, we do need to put in some fundraising infrastructure. And if the funder is saying, we are really excited about this project, we think it's going to be awesome, how can you make it sustainable within three years? Well, okay, cool. I believe that when you say you want to generate donors for it, that will happen. But if you don't have a development director or even anyone devoted to donor relations or let's say even a donor database, you're probably not really going to do that. So let's be honest about that too. What does it look like for a program to be sustainable within three years? And what if it's not? What if it's an amazing program and it's changing everybody's lives, but it's not sustainable within three years? What are we going to do with it then? I ask you. Next question. Next thing. This is connected again to this to the one above it. This is, again, related to the, the desire to fund pilots rather than ongoing programs. Uh, I love pilots. As I just said, I think minimum viable programs is a really great way for us to develop something and launch it and see if it works. And that would then itself turn into an evidence-based program potentially. But what I find is really interesting is that the, they don't want to fund ongoing programs, but they do only want to fund evidence-based programs, evidence-based with quotation marks around it. Okay, so this is something that's been evaluated somewhere and somebody probably did a write-up about it maybe in the Stanford Social Innovation Review. Hey, you should subscribe to that if you don't. I actually really love it, even though I'm sort of slightly mocking it. It's just because I think, you know, they put out like the best stuff in there and then everybody gets excited about it. But in reality, it's not always rec replicable. 
And so we want to be really careful about that and make sure that we're being realistic about what we can do in our organizations. So I think it's important to fund ongoing programs. I'll be honest. You know, I don't want you as funders to have to throw your money into the same thing over and over and over again. You're not obligated to do that at all. But if something is working and that the way that it works is by relying on ongoing funding, then let's talk about how that can work. If you want to fund evidence-based programs, sometimes it's going to be an ongoing thing. Sometimes it can be a new thing, but thinking about how you how you fund that project over time so that you can make sure that you get the data that you need to see if it's really going to work is important as well. I, I just want to really point out again that the point of this isn't to knock funders or to criticize nonprofits endlessly. It's just to say that I think that we could do a lot better job of partnering together and creating a world where nonprofits are able to receive the funding they need to do the awesome work they do and where funders can get an, a return on that investment that they're making in the nonprofit sector. So we need to be more honest. It's kind of like when you're in a relationship with somebody and you're not really honest, you're sort of like, oh, I like all the same music as you like. Oh, how weird. You listen to Weezer all the time. I totally love the, and then you quickly like look at the back of the CD cover, um, the sweater song. Oh, it's a wonderful track number four. I'm making that up. I don't know if it is really. Okay, so we're not going to like, I think it's important for us to not fake who we are and pretend like we're all best friends with the funders that we're working with when in reality, we do our work and the funders work is to invest in the kind of work that we do. So the best thing that we can do is be honest and ask for what we need. And funders, the best thing you can do is also be responsive to that. And then we can come together to find out ways that we can make the best impact as a team. We need the money. We need the work. We need those things to coalesce. We need those things to come together and be more than the sum of their parts. And we can't do that if we don't have better communication, if nonprofits don't see themselves as equal partners to funders, and if funders don't see nonprofits as equal funders to that or partners to them, we're really not going to get anywhere. So I'm going to just leave you with a couple of things that I think are important for nonprofits to consider asking for when they're making a funding request, and that funders need to consider offering to nonprofits as they're doing fund work. First of all, sufficient overhead funding. I know we've talked about that extensively. I don't want to beat that up to death, but I do think that it's critical. Um, I think asking for seed capital for very small pilots, the minimum viable programs that you can build, measure, and learn from quickly and nimbly with little investment would be a very smart investment of dollars. Ongoing funding for programs that really do work and have been proven and do have robust evaluation attached to them. I think simpler application processes would be amazingly helpful. I think capacity building investments from funders into nonprofits is essential if we're going to continue our work and if we're going to build a pipeline of great nonprofit leaders. I think funding for fundraising is also very important because even though we don't like paying for things that aren't sexy, fundraising is the backbone financial engine of most nonprofits and should be invested in. And then funding for evaluation. Look, if you want evaluation, it has to be paid for and it is not cheap. So let's actually invest in it and see if what we're doing really works. I'm going to leave you with this stuff. I think you're amazing. You're going to make the world a better place together. And I'm really glad to be a part of that. Thanks for being here today. Thanks for joining us for No Nonsense Nonprofit. Send us your thoughts about today's topic at our Facebook page, No Nonsense Nonprofit, on our blog, or by email to mail at nononsensenonprofit.com.